Morning. That last song is the sermon. You want me to preach or not? Psalm 42. If you want to turn there, you can. As C.S. Lewis says, it's the stern and splendid goodness or love of God. In Psalm 42, David is in a is in a deep and profound trial. This is the goodness of God. This is the point I, I hope to try to make with you. I trust that most of you already know this biblical truth. In the whirlwind, God is there. And it is the love and goodness of God that you find yourself in the whirlwind. You need to be in the storm or you wouldn't be there. This is what true Christians believe and understand. Um, Psalm 42 is really a conclusion to Psalm 13, which we talked about last week. It's, it's like an extension, so there's not a lot of difference. There's going, we're we're going to drill down on this fact of the goodness of God in the trials of His people. And we see here in Psalm 42, as we saw in Psalm 13, how the true believer comes to God in prayer and how he wrestles in prayer with his circumstance. A God-centered prayer. A God-centered prayer. So, again, I'm going to assume that David wrote Psalm 42 and Psalm 43. There's some disagreement on this. It's not attributed to him in uh, <clears throat> Scripture. Uh, some old Hebrew texts, maybe. I just want to let you know I'm assuming that this is David. And in Psalm 42, he perfectly articulates the ultimate pursuit and desire in prayer. It's right there in verse 1. You can read it for yourself. We'll cover it in a minute. It's right there in verse 1. He wants God. Now, if you don't understand, if you don't understand this very profound and important point about prayer, you've not understood prayer. David wants God. In fact, he pants for God. He thirsts for God. As you work through the psalm, you realize David uses the word despair and disturbed five times in 11 verses. Five times in 11 verses, David is pouring out his despondency. Now, I don't know how long it's been since you had to pray like that. But what I want to say to you, Psalm 42 is for all of us. All of us will find ourselves here. Psalm 42 is not academic. Psalm 42 is necessary for each one of us. And again, Psalm 43 in some Hebrew texts, it's just, it's just an extension of Psalm 42. So in his despair, David shows us what a true lover of God does. He comes before the Lord and he prays through his misery. And he prays through his pain and his disappointment and his discouragement. And as we talked a little bit about last week, in this hard place, he engages in prayer and preaching. What, am I, what do I mean? He's preaching to himself. You're going to see it in the text. He preaches to himself as he works through his despair. And if you notice, you might look real quick with me over in Psalm 43, verse 4. <clears throat> where, is, where does he expect to get? Where does he expect to get through this prayer and through this battle, through this wrestling with, with the Lord in the Spirit? He expects to get to God, Psalm 43, verse 4, to God who is his exceeding joy. Another fruit of, of biblical prayer. Exceeding joy in intimate fellowship with the living God. I've been thinking a lot about lately, as I mentioned last week, Psalm 23. And David's talking about the Lord leading and guiding him. And then he brings up the valley of the shadow of death. 
And it, it raises the question maybe to the, to the novice, why is the good shepherd taking his sheep through the valley of the shadow of death? Well, you know the answer, right? To get to the better place. What is the better place? We talked a lot about it last week. It's the perfect will of God. That's always the better place. That's always the good place in the will of God. And things happen in the trial that don't happen any other time for the true believer, right? You guys have been in it? You've been in it? Intimacy goes up. The fellowship with the Lord becomes not only important, but utterly necessary when it's hard and difficult. You remember how the 23rd Psalm, verse 4, ends there. David says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, what? I fear no evil. Why? God's with me. My God. The God. The only God. Yahweh is with me. I don't fear anything. I fear nothing. You know, to fear God is to fear nothing else. <laughs> right? Truly. To truly fear God is to fear nothing else. So David could fearlessly walk through the valley of the shadow of death. He trusted his Lord. I would often get this question from young adults in Milan about Actually, I got this question, this, this actual question. How can we trust God in an existential sense? Well, that's a big word, impressive word. What it means is in a practical sense, in a real-life sense. When everything's on the line, how can I trust God? How can I do it? I learned how to answer this question from Larry Crabb, and I, I'm going to recommend a book to you. It's Again, it's another book that's 20 years old. I think we talked about one of those a week or so ago. Larry Crabb, Christian author, wrote a book entitled Shattered Dreams. I highly recommend it. It's one of the few books I've ever reread. Shattered Dreams. You're going to love the subtitle. Shattered Dreams, God's Unexpected Pathway to Joy. Sounds like, sounds like an oxymoron, doesn't it? This is what we're going to see in Psalm 42. So let me say this. This is how I used to answer some of those young adults. This is the response I gleaned from Larry Crabb. If you are trusting God to give you something less than himself, you can't trust him for that. I'm going to say it again. If you are trusting God to give you something less than, your, than, than himself, you cannot trust him for that. And I'm making a very fine point here. You can't trust Him to do less than He's promised to do in your life, which is to bring you into conformity with His Son, Romans 8.29. This is what He's doing. He will not do less than that. He will not do less than that. This is an important lesson for us to learn. You know, many Christians, many professing Christians in this weak era they really just want to use God. That's really what it's about. I just need another blessing. And I detest this kind of superficiality in the church. You cannot trust God to allow you to use God like that. He will not allow you to simply use Him. The whole thing that's going on in biblical Christianity is, you know, John 17, 3, as Jesus prayed, that they may know you, not use you. And this is what David's talking about in verse 1, right? He needs God. He needs to know God more deeply. He needs to understand why, why this storm has come upon him. This is very personal. This is not name it and claim it. This is, I need God. So I'll just ask you, are you a user of God or a lover of God? Huge difference. This is the dichotomy between false and true Christianity. You got a whole segment of what is called the modern church out there trying to use God. Well, I'm going to exhort you to, to well, I'm going to warn you. 
Don't go down that path. Your first priority as a Christian must be to know God. And if you have to go through the storm to know God more deeply, then let it come. Let it come. You can't trust God to be a means to your lesser ends. I love this. You can't trust God to be a means to your lesser ends. God means to give himself to you. He means to do this. And he will do it on the fat day and the lean day. God does not intend to be your Santa Claus or your rabbit's foot or your lucky charm. You know, a lot of folks just want to rub God just right to get the blessing. I, again, this is apostasy and heresy. If you really desire something in your life more than you desire God, He will not let you settle for that. If you belong to Him, if you're His, He will not let you settle for that. He has something way bigger in mind for you. And if you do find yourself, if you claim to be a Christian and you find yourself more infatuated with something in the world than you are with God, if you find yourself in that position, guess what? The shattered dream is coming to you. It's coming your way. He'll blow that up. You know why he'll blow it up? Because he loves you like you've never been loved before. He won't let you settle for that. It's too small for you. It won't fill up your heart. He's going to blow it up because he loves you. So let's just be honest before we get started. I'm going to ask you to examine yourself right there in your chair, just between you and God. Are you desiring or pursuing anything over and above him? I want you to be honest with yourself. Are you desiring pursuing anything over and above him and you you know your own heart at least to this degree your reflexive response reveals everything you need to know about the state of your christianity are you panting for god are you thirsting for god is that really the paramount issue for you in your life when you wake up in the morning i'm panting for god and I'm thirsting for God. I must have God. Yes, I've got 15 important things I must do today. But first, I must have God. I must have God. I must have Him. If your honest answer to the question is, I do in fact find that I have some desire over and above God in my heart, I would lovingly call you to repent you that the shattered dream is coming. He'll blow that up. Why? Because he loves you. He is going to give you an unencumbered view of himself. Let me quote Larry Crabb from that great book, Shattered Dreams, which I encourage you to read. Crabb says it this way. I love this. This is one of those beautiful sentences, you know. Trusting God is a dangerous business unless you've trusted Him for what He actually promised to do. We're back to Romans 8.29. God will bring you into conformity with Jesus Christ. What does it look like? Well, it doesn't always look like health, wealth, and prosperity, does it? If we've actually read our Bibles. Trusting God is a dangerous business unless you trust Him for what He actually has promised to do in your life. I think that is an, an amazing, amazing quote. Many who call themselves Christians today have come to believe that God's preeminent purpose for them is to have a good time, is to be happy. And we know the, the word happy, happiness tends to come from uh, circumstances circumstantial. I'm happy in my circumstance. Well, what does Paul say? This guy that suffered immensely. What does Paul say? He says, I'm always sorrowful, but always rejoicing. I am sorrowful, but always rejoicing. 
This is the, this is the power of true Christianity, right? We, we, we actually rejoice in our sorrow. Why? God's in it. And God's doing something. God's changing me. God's bringing me into conformity with His Son. Praise God. This is the good will of God. This is the good of God. This is what we really want, right? Don't you really want the will of God? Don't you want to be changed? Don't you want to grow? Don't you want to know Him more deeply? That's what all of this is about. It's what Psalm 42 is about. It's what Psalm 42 is about. How did Paul say it? you know how Paul talks about his life. You remember when he was converted, the Lord said, I'll show him all that he must, what? Enjoy for my, for my, uh, no. All that Paul must, what? Suffer. All that Paul must suffer. We know 2 Corinthians eleven twenty three. Paul says, he's been in many labors and hardships, imprisonments, beaten times without numbers, stoned, shipwrecked, Many dangers, sleepless nights, without food, and subject to the exposure to the elements. Paul didn't have what one would call a happy life, but he had a profoundly joyful life, right? Intimacy with God. He sings in prison. You know the account. I think it's he, he and Silas. They sing in prison. They've just had a, received an unjust beating. And he's singing. Why is he singing? You can't have his joy. His joy is in Yahweh. You can't touch it. You can't have it. If your greatest desire in this life is something less than Jesus Christ, you cannot trust God to give you that inferior pleasure. He will blow that up. If there's anything in the way of your deep intimacy with God, the shattered dream is coming. He has bigger plans for you than your mere temporal happiness and circumstantial pleasure. And this is good news, beloved. Unless you love your circumstantial pleasure. This is how much He loves us. He won't let us settle. Larry Crabb again. Another great couple of sentences. I just want to share them with you. Our shattered dreams are never random. Don't you love it? It doesn't happen by accident. There's a purpose. There's sovereignty. It's full of sovereignty. A shattered, a shattered dream is full of sovereignty. He continues. It's never random. They're always a piece in a larger puzzle, a chapter in God's larger story. Pain is a tragedy, but it's never only a tragedy for the Christian. It's never a tragedy. For the Christian, it's always a necessary mile on the long journey to joy. An opportunity to be embraced, to discover our, our desire for the highest blessing God wants to give us. And what is it? What is it? You've got to hear me say this today. What is the highest blessing? It is Himself. It's always Himself. It's always are you in the trial? Beloved, we need to understand this. God is doing something. In my 40 years of lay and vocational the problem most professed Christians have with God, it seems to me, the one I hear the most often is, where is He? Where is He? My dreams are shattered. Where is he? And I can say to them, he's right in the middle of it. He's right in the middle of it. Where's God when he silently lets your cherished dream die. The question is, where is he? We know where he is. He's on his throne. And he's working all his good pleasure. But as Crabb rightly says, God's not doing nothing in the trial. He's doing something profound, something you desperately need. This is not wasted pain. 
It's exactly what you and I need. This is Psalm 42. Again, I'm assuming David. He's in the midst of a deep trial. Something has gone terribly wrong. Something has brought him into deep despair. No doubt some cherished dream, hope, or desire has been shattered. What will David do? How will he navigate all of this sorrow and grief? The pain is real. The dream is shattered. The heartache is acute. And we see this very real conflict between the flesh and the spirit. You've been there. Between hope and despair. You've been there. Between the senses and faith. You've been there. If you've attained any age at all, you've been there. You know what this is about. People say, well, Jim, where's God? I thought he was a good God. Where is he? He doesn't feel good right now. I don't hear him. I don't feel him. What did we talk about last week? When we don't feel him, what? We, we believe him. We, we trust him. Well, I thought Romans 8.28 was true for me. It is true for you in a much bigger sense than you've ever imagined. In both the Old and New Testaments, God promises good to His people. And in the midst of the trial, He's making good on that promise. You've got to hear this. You've got to learn this. You have to understand this. This is where mature, mature Christians dwell. This is where we live. The problem for most of us is that we don't understand God's definition of what is good. Our, our definition is mostly about circumstantial happiness, health, wealth, and prosperity, well-being, comfort, and ease. God's definition is not like that. His is radically bigger. Let me quote C.S. Lewis and we'll get into the text. God's love is something more stern and splendid than mere kindness. Praise God for that. Amen. That's the title of the sermon. A splendid love. God loves us. God's love is something more stern and splendid than mere kindness. He will take endless trouble and doubtless give endless trouble to those He loves. Verses 1 and 2, God is our, I'm sorry, my pages are blowing. Back to Psalm 42. As a deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? He's in, the, he's in the throes of deep trial, and he pants for God. It's always like this, right? It's always like this for the true believer. It's always like this. If you don't know you need God like that, then you have a huge problem. You know, we live in such a prosperous society and culture. And we take almost everything for granted almost every day. We almost have no sense of how dependent we are on Him. And how desperately we need Him moment by moment. And I don't get one more brainwave without Yahweh. Beloved, you need to know how bad you need Yahweh. This is what David's talking about. And the trial always brings that to a head, doesn't it? I've got to have God. I've got to have God. This is the goodness of God. <laughs> He's going to reveal himself to you in a new way. Yeah, it's hard, but it's good. It's that stern and splendid love that only He knows how to impart.
To paraphrase Lewis, when we complain about the heat and the pressure and the duration of the trouble God has designed for us, we are unwittingly wishing not for more goodness but less. One Christian author puts it like this, you have to thank God for the seemingly good and the seemingly bad because you don't know the difference. <laughs> I love that. You don't know the difference. And for the true believer, God's in all of it. God is in all of it. So God is in David's trial. He has not merely allowed it, he has designed it from eternity past, he has designed it to bring him through the valley of the shadow of death to a better place. And it's what we see here in verse 1, David, again, as I've said, is thirsting for God. It's what a God-ordained and God-designed trial will do in your life. You suddenly realize how desperately I need him. We're not always mindful of it. Sometimes we act like we're little sovereigns. The trial will drive us to him in a brand new way. Verse 3, Psalm 42. My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all day long, where is your God, David is a fierce warrior and he's weeping day and night. Can you feel it? Have you been there? Do you understand what he's talking about? This is no small thing for a man like David. Have you been there? If you've not been there, you will be there. Some of you young folks are too young. You don't know what despair is. Some of us old guys, we know exactly. And we know who meets us there. David wasn't spared his tears, and we know we know neither was Jesus Christ. He wasn't spared his tears either. And you will not be spared yours. But we know what that beautiful psalm says, right? He's in every one of them. He's got them. Yeah, Psalm 56, 8. I actually have it in my notes in the right place. Uh, psalm 56, 8. He, he has taken into account every tear. It's in his bottle. They are in his book. You don't have a tear to spare, beloved. They are not wasted. And we see this assault on David's faith. It's either his tears or his enemies. I think it's his enemies based on what we see later in the psalm down in verse 10. I believe it's his enemies that are taunting him. Where's your God? How many times have you heard this? Where's your God? Where is he? And we can say... Maybe through the tears, with a smile, he's right in the middle of this, and I can't wait to see what he does. I can't wait to see what God does with this. I can't wait to see what he does. We may have to say it through the tears, but that's okay. <laughs> One of my favorite things to say. How many guys did, he, did Nebuchadnezzar throw in the fire? How many? You know... How many? Three. How many did Nebuchadnezzar see in the fire? You know, four. He's right there with you, beloved. He's right there with you. Verse four. These things I remember, and I pour out my soul within me, for I used to go along with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with the voice of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude-keeping festival. This is the one verse that many reason, uh, one reason many scholars believe that uh, David wrote this. He's probably on the run from Saul or Absalom. He's been cut off from his normal place of worship, and he hates it. 
He longs for it. It's what he's talking about. It's true, isn't it, for any real Christian. We build our week around Sunday. Being in God's house with God's people under the preached Word of God is not negotiable for us. It's non-negotiable for us. We need it. We want it. It's one thing David is saying. You know, you meet some professing Christians and it's just always on the bubble. Oh, I might come. I don't know. It's always on the bubble. Again, for David, it was non-negotiable. It's a matter of necessity for the regenerate heart to be in God's house, be with God's people. It's that thirsty soul thing we saw back in verse 1, right? I got I to gotta put, my, put myself in God's way. I want to hear what God's Word says. I want to hear the encouragement from God's people. I want to pray with them. I want to praise God. I want to bring an offering. It's what I want to do. On Sunday morning. Verse 5. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him for the help of his presence. Don't you love it? He's fighting through his despair and he begins to preach to himself. I think I told you last week. David begins to preach to himself. I will hope in God. My promise keeping God. My God who speaks worlds and suns and stars and trillions of galaxies into existence. He's my God. He's my Father. I hope in Him. I don't care what my enemies say. I don't care what my circumstances say. I don't care what Satan is whispering in my ear. I do not care. I hope in God. I hope in God. The incomparable God. There's no one like you. There's no one like you. There's no one like you, Isaiah chapter 6. It's what they're saying when they say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. There is no one like Yahweh. And Yahweh loves His people like no one else. It's true, isn't it? Every morning you wake up, there's a voice in your head. I'm hazarding a guess that many times it's all about you. You know, right when you wake up, maybe I'm wrong. That voice in your head, you can test yourself in the morning. I know for me, a lot of times, I, sin is talking, pity is talking to me, vanity, ego, and pride is talking to me. And I need to shut that up. How do you shut it up? You get right in the Word of God. God will shut that up. <laughs> God will shut that up. I love what preacher Martin Lord Jones, Jones uh, English preacher in the 20th century. I love what he says here. He says, <clears throat> Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact you're listening to yourself? Don't you love that? You got to get off the reflection in the mirror. You got to get in the Word, hope in God all day long. And if you have to, Break out of your daily routine. Go get alone. Be alone with God. Pour out your heart to Him, but end up hoping in Him. Don't ever listen to yourself. You've got to preach to yourself. You have to. You have to. You must. Or one day you may find your faith shipwrecked. If you don't learn how to preach to yourself. If we don't take charge of our fallen fleshly temporal thinking by injecting God's truth, our fallen fleshly temporal thinking will take charge of us. 
David knows that he can feel sorry for himself or he can preach to himself. <laughs> so he starts preaching to himself. Verse 6. My pages continue to blow. Oh my God, my soul is in despair. Okay, he's just hoping in God. Look at verse 6. Oh my God, my soul is in despair within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of the Jordan and the peaks of Hermon and, and, and from Mount Mazar. David says, I remember those times. I remember those times when you showed up in the past and you delivered me. Listen, I wanted to share with you that I journal. I've journaled for many, I've journaled for decades now. One reason I journal is I love to read and reread God's faithfulness to me. And I think, in my view, this is one thing David's talking about. He's remembering God's past faithfulness, which will encourage you into tomorrow because you're expecting his new faithfulness. Amen? How does Jeremiah say it? They're new every morning. They're new every morning. He's been in storms before, and oh, guess what? Yahweh showed up. If you're a Christian, you have a testimony like this. If you're, if you're not born again, you don't, you, don't, you don't have any idea what I'm talking about. But if you know Christ and you love Christ, you know exactly what I'm talking about. He always shows up at the right time. May not be the time you want, but it'll be perfect to accomplish what he desires to accomplish in your life. David remembers his history with God. It's one thing, at least I believe, is being said here. Some of you have these nights. I had a night 27 years ago when I could not cry one more tear. And God showed up. And he loved me through it. And he changed me. My dreams were shattered. But he gave me a better one. This is what he does. He'll give you a better one. If the dream is shattered, oh, guess what? If you're his, there's a better one coming. It's way bigger. It's more beautiful. It's more passionate. It's more interesting than that little thing you thought you had to have. When the storm comes or when I contemplate future storms, I remember the faithfulness of God. I would encourage you to do the same. You've got to have a history with God. You have to have a well-chronicled history with God. You need to journal and be astonished. You know, sometimes I'll, I'll go back and look at my journal, and I'll go in and tell Karen, I'll say, man, I can't believe that happened. I had forgotten that happened. And this is what he did. You remember. Verses 7 and 8. Deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime and his song will be with me in the night. A prayer to the God of my life. The storm is unrelenting. But David says what? It's a beautiful thing. David says, these are my father's waves. These are my father's breakers. This is my father's storm. God did this. God is doing this. So I have every reason to have, you know, complete and utter crazy expectations of what's going to come out of it. You know, I told the church in Milan when we first got there, we had four people. And I said, we have every reason to believe this church will fail. Every reason. Except one. <laughs> Yahweh's in this. We believed it. And for 18 years, he kept the door open. It was a joke to everybody else, but not to him. 
David says this storm is full of sovereign design and purpose, right? That's what your storm's about to. Not just a little sovereignty, complete sovereignty, total sovereignty. Not one rogue molecule in your trial. God's in charge. This is not blind fate or meaningless pain. This is Romans 8.29. It's always Romans 8.29 for the New Testament Christian. So in verse 8, David states his trust in the loving purposes of God. And then in verse 9 and 10, we read this. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Man, this, this, this psalm is just up and down and up and down. and There's a, just a, a complete transparent uh, picture of the heart of David here as he wrestles with God. Verse 9, you have forgotten me. Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As a shattering of my bones, my adversaries revile me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? You know, I, I've made it a habit to tell folks not to ask God why. God doesn't command us not to ask Him why. I just find it uninteresting and unprofitable and not necessary. But David asked Him why right here, doesn't he? David asked Him why. And here's the deal. If you're going to ask God why, I would ask Him like this. David worships him, and then he asks him, right? He says, I will say to God, who's my rock, why have you forgotten me, right? This is how you ask God why. If you're going to ask God why, I don't personally recommend it. Again, I don't find it interesting or profitable. I kind of already know why. Romans 8, 29, I know why. He's told me why. I don't need to ask why. But if you feel the need, if you're going to ask God why, ask him like this, you know. Worship him and ask him. I love this reverential way in which David comes to God to inquire. So, in closing, I want to just review the ups and downs here, okay? Because some of you have experienced this. We have seen this profound inner struggle between his natural and temporal view of his current circumstances and his supernatural eternal view of them. So David, again, the struggle between the natural temporal view and the spiritual supernatural eternal view. Just a quick review. Verse 1 and 2, David begins in supernatural faith. He's looking at and longing for Yahweh. Verses 3 and 4, David's natural senses complain about his current circumstances. Verse 5, supernatural faith silences that complaint with hope in God. Verses 6 and 7, the natural senses renew their complaint regarding the current trouble. Verse 8, supernatural faith answers with trust in God's sovereign loving kindness. Verse 9 and 10, the natural senses once again repeat the complaint. And then we get to verse 11. David stops questioning God and he questions his soul. Again, why are you in despair, O oh my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance. And my God, faith gets the last word with David. Does it get the last word with you? Or do you insist on worry? Do you insist on wringing your hands before God? Do you insist on complaining to everyone who will listen about your situation? Will you just hope in God? Will you just hope in God? David refuses to listen to himself, and he gets the victory. He gets the victory. I love how Charles Spurgeon said this. This was almost the title of the sermon. 
Probably should have been the title of the sermon. Um, but Lisa was putting pressure on me. So I had to get it in quick. Um, Charles Spurgeon, 19th century English preacher, says, David gets the victory by anticipation. <laughs> Nothing's changed. Nothing has changed. But he's hoping in God. That's all he needs to know. That's all he really needs to do. He has an anticipation of what good thing God will bring out of this hard thing, right? <laughs> A victor by anticipation. I love that. Made me think of Lamentations 3. I'm going to turn there and read it. A couple of verses. Lamentations 3. You know this famous verse from this dirge over Jerusalem. God is severely judging his people for their haughtiness and sin and waywardness and pseudo-religion. Right before this famous verse in 321, Lamentations 321, Jeremiah says, 315, I'm filled with bitterness. 317, I have forgotten happiness. 318, my strength has perished and so has my hope from the Lord. But then he, then he remembers what his mama taught him about Yahweh, right? You know the text. Lamentations 3.21 This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, even right now in the worst possible circumstance I can imagine. Mothers are eating their young. The Lord's loving kindnesses, plural, indeed never cease. For His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in Him. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the person who seeks Him. It is good that He waits silently for the salvation of the Lord. You know, sometimes you just need to put your hand over your mouth and wait for God to do what He's going to do. Just shut up. And rest and trust in what God's going to do. I love this. I don't know if it's original. I am probably read it somewhere. Very little that comes out of my mouth is original. <clears throat> but I love this. Jeremiah would not let his circumstance dictate his view of God. He let his view of God dictate his view of circumstance. This is what Christians do. It's what Christians do. When the storm comes, when the dreams are shattered, when the tears won't stop and the anguish takes what seems to be permanent hold, we remember God is not absent. God is with me. He's with me in this storm. My hope is in this awesome, omnipotent, sovereign, promise-keeping God. And I refuse to myself or anyone else that has anything else to say other than you can rest in Yahweh. Don't come to me with psychobabble. I'm not interested. Come, with, come to me with God. Yahweh's faithfulness and loving kindness, it never ceases. It is new every morning, and the sun's going to come up. The sun is going to come up. So, for the true believer, if you're trusting God to give you anything less than himself, you cannot trust him for that. You can't trust him to give you something you want more than wanting him. You can't trust him to allow you to settle for something less than himself. And I go back to C.S. Lewis. His love is too splendid. His love 
is too splendid for that. God will take endless trouble and doubtless give endless trouble to bring you into deep intimacy with Him and to complete the Romans 8.29 project, which you and I are in desperate need of completion. I love Psalm 42. If you don't know about Psalm 42, you soon will know about Psalm 42. The whirlwind will come. And as I think I shared with you last week, one of my favorite theologians said, God will let you totter to see if you'll fall on Him. Man, I love Psalm 42. <laughs> Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this word. We thank you that it's every day. Every day it's true. Until the day we step in front of you. And you have completed the good work you've begun. Thank you, Lord, that it's true every day. We thank you that your hands are always on the clay and that sometimes you press down hard because we need to change. We need to grow, we need to mature, we need to stop being babes. We only have a few moments left on this planet. We need to grow up and walk around like men and women of God. Proclaiming your majesty, and your beauty, and your sufficiency, and your goodness in every circumstance. We love you, great God. We praise you. In the matchless name of Jesus Christ, amen.